0: This is
1: Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
2: Abortion rights advocates say the Supreme Court effectively blessed Texas's ban on abortion, the strictest in the nation, with a narrow ruling that left the law in force. The decision said clinics and doctors could press claims in a federal trial court against a handful of state officials, but not others named in the lawsuit. The ruling could be a bad sign for abortion rights advocates as they wait word on the fate of Roe v. Wade, the landmark ruling that legalized abortion in this country. My guest is Elizabeth Sepper, a professor at the University of Texas Law School. Tell us what the Supreme Court decided.
3: The Supreme Court issued a very narrow win for abortion providers. That's really more of a loss in practice. So the Supreme Court held that the abortion providers could proceed in their lawsuits only against state licensing authorities, so the sort of medical boards, nursing boards that discipline doctors and nurses. But the court said that the abortion providers can't pursue their lawsuit against court clerks or state court judges or the attorney general of the state of Texas. In practice, what this means is that the abortion providers will go back to federal district court in the state of Texas to litigate against the licensing authorities. It means, though, that SB8 Remains in effect. It also means that the abortion providers are going to have a hard time getting the relief that they really need to resume their procedures because even if they win injunctions against the licensing authorities and the district court concludes that SB 8 is unconstitutional, that injunction isn't going to apply against the court clerks. And the court clerks are really essential because the argument was they could stop SBA lawsuits from going forward. They would just be enjoined, blocked, that is, from docketing complaints by private citizens that can be filed under the Texas law. So because they don't have that, abortion providers really are facing a loss. They can't start up serving patients again, at least at this point.
2: Do you think the court was just trying to find a way to allow the case to continue to try to quiet the public furor around it?
3: If so, it was very strange. right? <laughs> um, it's sort of baffling what happened at the court over the past month, because the Supreme Court had SB-8 before it at the end of August, had the opportunity to stop SB-8 from going into effect. When it failed to do so, and frankly surprised a lot of people in failing to block the law before it went into effect, given that it's straightforwardly unconstitutional, to have a six-week ban under the court's precedence. That was shocking. So when the court then took up the issue of SB8 again, That seemed to suggest that the court was responding to public pressure and was going to act differently if only to preserve the authority of federal courts to decide constitutional questions. But that's not really what happened then last week when we got a ruling again from the court because the court didn't say that federal courts have the power to substantively block these state court clerks from docketing the petition, and it's sort of weak relief for the abortion providers that they might get an injunction against the licensing authorities, because really the licensing authority power is a power to discipline after the providers have been sued and after a judgment has been issued under SB-8 in favor of some private plaintiffs. So it's not super helpful to the providers. It doesn't lift the status in Texas, which is that abortion is effectively blocked and we don't have our constitutional right to abortion in place.
2: Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion. Explain his reasoning.
3: So it was an 8-1 decision, but it doesn't really reflect the unanimity of the court. Justice Gorsuch had to go through a number of the defendants named by the abortion providers. So he said that the judges and court clerks have sovereign immunity. So they're immunized due to concerns about federalism. So federal courts are limited in their ability to tell state actors, especially state court systems, what to do, how to approach litigation. And so his argument was that these actors have immunity under a doctrine known as ex parte young. He also said there wasn't a real case in controversy because the judges and the court clerks are not oppositional to the abortion providers the way your average defendant would be. He then said that Attorney General Paxton was not a proper defendant. Here, the abortion providers had argued that essentially the attorney general had delegated authority, had empowered private citizens around the country to act as his agents. In the enforcement of this statute. But here too, Justice Gorsuch said the abortion providers had not identified a proper defendant that the attorney general doesn't have the power to enforce SBA. So all that was left were the licensing authorities. And there, Justice Gorsuch said, you know what, there is evidence in the way that the statutory structure works that the licensing authorities could ultimately enforce SBA. The problem with that reasoning is that we could see the state of Texas go back to the drawing board, make clear that the licensing authorities don't have any power to enforce SB-8, and then there's no defendant left at all, no one for the abortion providers to sue. And I expect we will see that model uh, in other states that are thinking about copycat SB-8 abortion laws.
2: It was an 8-to-1 vote, but there was a blistering dissent by the liberals. Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote, the court should have put an end to this madness months ago before SB8 first went into effect.
3: So Justice Sotomayor on the issue of state immunity pointed to the fact that ex parte young contains an important principle. And that principle is that states can't create an end run around the Constitution. They can't create a system that doesn't allow federal court oversight of federal rights. So even though there's language in ex parte young that suggests that normally state court judges can't be sued, um, that the Supreme Court here should have allowed state court clerk to be sued and should have done so on the basis that otherwise Texas has purposely created a statute that avoids the federal courts
4: and allows
3: an end run around individuals' constitutional rights.
2: What happens now in in Texas courts?
3: So there's still so much going on. So um, the abortion providers return to federal courts and and the district court. There is litigation in Texas involving 14 cases that were consolidated and where the Texas judge, Judge Peoples, um, just last week, did conclude that a number of the provisions were unconstitutional as a matter of the Texas Constitution. This was a decision that, as he said, was about civil procedure, not abortion. So he made a number of rulings in those 14 cases on the issue of standing and the statutory damages award and also where the proceedings can be filed. He did not issue an injunction, But uh, we can expect that when the providers go back to the various courts in which these 14 cases have been filed, that some injunctions will issue. Again, the problem is that SB 8 has constructed a regime that doesn't really allow for finality. And finality is an important due process rule of law value that means you can't keep being sued. You don't have the Vector of a future lawsuit hanging over you after you win. But SBA creates that exact system. So it says things like that there's not going to be issue or claim preclusion. So once you've litigated a claim, you've litigated an issue, it's then not final for later lawsuits. It also says that even if you win, if your win is ultimately overturned on appeal you're going to be held liable for the abortions provided in the interim. So it is possible that we will see some abortion providers based on Judge People's decision in the Texas courts and the the subsequent decisions in Texas courts begin to perform abortions again. But they will only do so with a real cloud of possible potential future litigation hanging over them.
2: Everyone is looking toward the Mississippi case. Does this in any way indicate what the court will do in the Mississippi case, that it will overturn Roe v. Wade?
3: I would read the Mississippi case uh, one where the outcome is fairly predictable, um, that Mississippi is going to win. I'm not sure the degree to which the SB 8 opinion tells us anything we didn't already know. Maybe what it suggests is that the conservatives are going to act as a block. And I think, you know, after the oral arguments in the Mississippi case, there continued to be a lot of discussion over whether Chief Justice Roberts could convince other conservative justices to adopt something that looks slightly more moderate. It would not be moderate, but slightly more moderate or sneaky than saying the words, we overrule Roe v. Wade, I would say the SBA opinion maybe suggests that he has really lost control of the court, that it's no longer the Roberts court, it might be the Barrett court, it might be the Kavanaugh court, it might be the Gorsuch court. And it doesn't look like he's going to be able to push conservative justices to at least, through a sleight of hand, pretend that they're less conservative than they seem.
2: And without any explanation, the Supreme Court turned away the Justice Department's bid to block the Texas law. What do you make of that?
3: Right. So the Justice Department had actually um, sued and received relief on the merits. The district court had ruled that SB 8 was unconstitutional under Supreme Court doctrine. Um, and then the case went up to the Fifth Circuit, which lifted, uh, stayed the injunction um, and blocked abortions yet again. They had briefly were being performed for about a 36-hour period. Um, and the D- Justice Department went to the Supreme Court, which is now uh, Dismiss the petition as improvidently granted, which is a Supreme Court way of saying, oops, we should not have granted this petition. Let's send it back to the Fifth Circuit for oral argument and decision on the merits. So the Justice Department is now in the Fifth Circuit, um, and we'll see when the court is willing to hear arguments um, in that matter. I would suspect sometime in, early in the new year.
2: Was it was that just the Supreme Court kicking the can down the road for a bit? So it was,
3: you know, um, after oral argument on SB8, folks predicted that the abortion providers would win, and because the abortion providers won and would be able to seek full relief, it made less sense for the Department of Justice to pursue a lawsuit because there were individuals who could assert. The constitution against this law. But the Supreme Court didn't really give abortion providers a win, right? There's still no person who can globally challenge SB8 in the federal court. So that actually should have put more pressure on siding with the United States at the Supreme Court. But it's exactly the opposite of what the court did. It really did kick the can down the road Maybe with the idea that by the time the Justice Department suit comes back to it, it will have eviscerated the right to abortion in the Mississippi case. In
2: dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor said the ruling could reach beyond abortion to enact laws that nullify constitutional rights from abortion to guns to religion. And that's exactly what the governor is trying to do in California with regard to guns. Yes and no.
3: Um, You know, to some extent, it's a political stunt. Um, It's a political stunt because the California law um, that the governor may or may not propose is one that doesn't actually infringe on constitutional rights, right? So the idea is that um, the law would allow one's fellow citizens to sue one for, you know, providing ghost guns providing uh, assault weapons, manufacturing them, um, and so on, owning them. But none of those are rights protected by the U.S. Constitution or any interpretation of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court relatively recently determined – that the Second Amendment, which creates a right to form militias, extends to gun ownership in one's home. But they were talking about handguns, and they were talking about in one's home. And courts of appeals that have dealt with issues of assault weapons or uh, ghost guns have actually sided with the government, held that there was no violation of constitutional rights. So in that sense, it's a disanalogy. We would have to see something Um, that got at the core of constitutional rights, which is possible. The Supreme Court has really handed both blue and red states a template for designing an SB-8 that applies to speech or guns or the takings clause.
2: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Liz. That's Professor Elizabeth Sepper of the University of Texas Law School. The House has voted to hold former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in contempt of Congress after he stopped cooperating with the January 6th Committee investigating the Capitol insurrection. Meadows is the first former White House Chief of Staff in nearly 50 years to face prosecution. Here's Committee Chair Benny Thompson and Committee Vice Chair
5: Liz Cheney. And when a witness defies the law, that amounts to more than obstruction our investigation It's an attack on the rule of law.
2: We wish that we did not uh, have to meet today uh, to urge our colleagues uh, to vote uh, criminal contempt for one of our former colleagues and the former chief of staff to President Trump. We don't take this step lightly. But Republicans denounced what they called overreach by the Democrats. Here's Representative Jim Banks.
5: Mr. Meadows agreed to sit for a deposition if it was limited to areas not protected by executive privilege. He tried to cooperate, but the select committee didn't care. The near party line
2: 222 to 208 vote on Tuesday is the second time the special committee has sought to punish a witness for defying a subpoena. Former Trump adviser Steve Bannon has already been indicted for criminal contempt for refusing to testify to the panel, and he awaits trial in July. The question now is whether the Justice Department will decide to prosecute Meadows as it's prosecuting Bannon. Joining me is William Banks, a professor at Syracuse University Law School. What's the import of the House voting to hold Meadows in contempt of Congress?
1: Well, I think the Meadows case is similar to the Bannon matter and others that may be coming down the pike with the continuing investigation, they authorized the Justice Department to proceed with prosecution. It's a referral. It's not a prosecution itself, and it, it's certainly not the end of the road. So just as they did in the Bannon matter, the department is going to have to consider whether to convene a grand jury to indict Meadows. The questions are a bit different. With Meadows than they were with Bannon, because Meadows, of course, was chief of staff. He had a close relationship with the president as an official matter. Bannon did not, certainly did not at that time. So the questions about executive privilege will be a little more delicate and nuanced, I suppose, in deciding to what extent Meadows might be privileged in the material that he wishes to withhold from the committees. As we know, he was cooperating up to a point, And some of the stuff that he turned over seemingly is of value in the January 6th investigation. So I would think that there's more there that the committees would very much like to have. And justice will have to figure out whether they can reasonably request it in light of claims of privilege that he might make.
2: His claims of privilege would have been stronger if he hadn't turned over those documents and if he hadn't written a book on his time in the White House. Will justice consider that as well?
1: I think they will. And, you know, I think there's lots of room to navigate the area of, of executive privilege. And, you know, underlying all of this is the fact now that the president that he was trying to protect is no longer the president and that the current president has authorized the investigation. So that colors what the courts might say about arguments of privilege at this stage of the game.
2: Turning to another subject, the District of Columbia has sued the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, two right-wing groups, for allegedly conspiring to terrorize the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Tell us more about the lawsuit.
1: Well, this is a very interesting development. Uh, the, the government of the District of Columbia uh, is suing in civil court the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and many of the individual members of those organizations for damages as a result of their attack on the Capitol on January the 6th. As we all know, there, there is ongoing criminal investigations of January 6th by the federal government and many of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers have been implicated in those criminal investigations. Some of them have been charged. Few of them have even taken pleas. Most of them are defending uh, against those actions. But the civil suit is something different. D.C., of course, the D.C. police in particular were hard hit on January 6th they in uh, many injuries uh, to officers. A tremendous amount of resource was committed. To defending the District of Columbia on that day and the days after. Uh, so the D.C. is trying to recoup uh, some of what they lost.
2: The Proud Boys dissolved their national leadership after January 6th and is being run by local chapters. So where is the money for damages going to come from if D.C. wins?
1: Yeah, well, that's a very good question. There may not be much money for damages, except to the extent any of these individuals have, have means, and probably not many of them do. It is true that they've dissolved their national leadership, and their strategy seems to have changed to try to uh, influence uh, local communities, uh, school boards, local governments, and the like. That certainly doesn't insulate them from, uh, from the reach of federal law and litigation, But they may be judgment proof so that, you know, if there is a judgment, I think the law lines up very strongly in favor of the government here. If they do get a judgment in court, it may be relatively unenforceable, but still would send an important symbolic message.
2: The D.C. attorney general said this act was not a protest or a rally. It was a coordinated act of domestic terrorism. So why aren't they being prosecuted for that? by the Justice well, Department, domestic terrorism?
1: Yeah, well, it, it put, there are a couple of issues here. One, The basic issue is that there is not a discrete crime of domestic terrorism. There are a series of crimes that can be uh, charged related to the acts that we would call domestic terrorism. But because of concerns about the First Amendment and because of concerns based on our history of protecting uh, expressive conduct, we've been very careful not to uh, define something called domestic terrorism. The other point though is that, you know, the the law is a I- historical irony here. The law under which these individuals are being sued was uh, was passed after the civil war and it's known euphemistically as the Ku Klux Klan Act because it was put into place in 1871 to allow the government to stand in the way of the Klan that was trying to disrupt the newly reconstituted states in the South. And they were doing essentially what the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers did on January 6th, trying to interfere with the conduct of government affairs and government business by getting in the way of government officials.
2: So I want you to listen to what a lawyer for two of the defendants named in the suit Jonathan Mosley said, quote, neither the Proud Boys nor the Oath Keepers were remotely interested in obstructing the joint session of Congress on January 6th, because that would leave no one as president elevating Nancy Pelosi to the presidency. So uh, I'm wondering how you take that, whether it's just sort of tongue in cheek, it's not a real defense. It's not a
1: defense. I mean, so of course, the uh, the the uh, charges in the indictment or in the civil action here today the complaint by the way runs at 188 pages wow. uh, i read through it this morning and uh, uh, and i was cursing you under my breath <laughs> <laughs> i'm <laughs> sorry the, the, <laughs> No, i'm, I'm joking yeah. it's quite an interesting complaint so the the charges under the federal law the so-called ku klux klan act are going to require that the government prove that the, uh, that the individuals conspired to intend, to intimidate, to coerce, to disrupt uh, these officials from going about their business. I think from what we've learned in the criminal investigation so far and what we could see from video and still images of that day, that's exactly what was going on. Uh, whether it was to leave Nancy Pelosi as, uh, as putative president or, or not, they were attempting to disrupt the affairs of Congress as they try to certify the results of the election, so it's going to require proof. Uh, but the proof, you know, is is essentially been uh, developed by the Justice Department on the criminal side, and and the civil court. The D.C. Uh, uh, officials who are prosecuting the case, bringing the case, can certainly use that material to prove their case against these individuals proud boys, you know, keepers, and against the organizations themselves.
2: This isn't the first civil lawsuit that's been filed against the members of the extremist groups who stormed the Capitol, because several members of Congress have sued leaders of the two organizations, former President Donald Trump and his former attorney, Rudy Giuliani, for conspiring to incite the insurrection, seven Capitol police officers have also filed a similar lawsuit. So the cases would seem to have the same witnesses. Could the cases be consolidated and tried together?
1: That seems unlikely given the disparate nature of the plaintiffs here. You know, members of Congress and the D.C. government aren't going to be uh, co plaintiffs in a lawsuit there would be an interest in consolidating, at least for the purposes of proof, and maybe the, the, the federal district court judges in D.C. can figure out a way to get that done if it goes that far. You know, the other, the other important action here that serves as a precedent, of course, is the Charlottesville uh, judgment against some of the same groups and individuals that was recently uh, determined by federal court in Charlottesville. With massive assessment of damages, as you a question you raised before about where is that money going to come from to pay the damages, no one knows. But you know, a significant million, multi-million dollar damages award was given for the actions undertaken in 2017 in the Charlottesville riot.
2: Thanks for being on the show, Bill. That's William Banks, a professor at Syracuse University Law School.
5: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest warehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients.
0: A divided U.S.
2: Supreme Court left in force New York's mandate that health care workers be vaccinated against COVID-19, refusing to order exemptions for 20 providers who say they object to the shot on religious grounds. There was no explanation from the majority, but this case follows a similar rejection in a main case in October. Justices Neil Gorsuch, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito dissented with Gorsuch suggesting that New York Governor Kathy Hochul had acted out of anti-religious animus. Among other remarks, Hochul had said in September that people with religious objections to vaccine mandates, quote, aren't listening to God and what God wants. Joining me is Dorit Reese, a professor at UC Hastings College of Law who specializes in vaccine policy. There was no opinion from the majority, but was this expected?
4: Yes and no. So on one hand, we already have one case on related facts, the main case in which a majority in the Supreme Court refused to stay a similar mandate. On the other hand, the New York facts were a little trickier on two grounds. First, New York initially proposed to have a religious exemption and then took it out. And that was the issue for the District Court judge that initially stayed their mandate in one of the three cases. And second, Justice Gorsuch quoted statements from the current acting governor of New York could be used to suggest there's hostility to religion
2: here. So Justices Neil Gorsuch, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito dissented. Justice Gorsuch, as you say, criticized the New York governor, Kathy Hochul, but he also suggested that she had acted out of anti-religious animus. Did that seem like it was going a little too far?
4: No, and here's why. The justice is building on, first of all, I think it's unjustified that this is building on a decision from 2018 by the Supreme Court in Masterpiece Cake Shop. In that case, the Supreme Court majority found that the Colorado Commission of Civil Rights acted out of hostility to religion when it penalized the baker that refused to bake a cake for a same-sex couple. And the Supreme Court used statement by commission members to show hostility to religion. So in this use, the justice was following that earlier precedent. He was not targeting the governor out of the blue. He was following a previous Supreme Court decision that did look at what officials say. The problem with that is in that previous case, you had a limited commission and the statements by members could be used to suggest how the commission in its entirety viewed it. Even then it was problematic because Lachiton's specific statement is treaty. Here, the statements in question were the governor's statements outside the mandate. The health department manager did not include this statement, and the governor wasn't the one that issued the decision. So using the statement is somewhat out of context here. But the question of hostility to religion is now part of our law.
2: So let me ask you this about the vaccine itself and about the religious objections to the vaccine. Mm -hmm. The petitioner said that they objected to the vaccine's origin from abortion derived fetal cell lines in testing, development or production. But New York said, first of all, that none of the vaccines contain aborted cells, but the use of Mm -hmm. fetal cell lines for testing is common, including for the rubella vaccination, and that healthcare workers are already required to take. So what is the religious objection?
4: So, first of all, we're now stepping into into really tricky ground. We can't, when we examine religious objection, assess whether it's logical. The question is, is it sincere? And the arguments you're raising kind of show how tricky it is to apply that standard. It's really hard to say when do we move from is the belief valid to is the belief sincere. The city is well-placed to assess whether the objection is sincere. For example, it can say if you have taken MMR vaccines in which the rubella vaccine has been grown on cell lines descended from abortion from the 1960s, Uh, if you've taken that vaccine and you're now refusing to take a COVID vaccine that has a much more tenuous connection to those same old cell lines, you need to explain to us why and why we should believe you that this really is the reason for your objection. That's totally fair because you can say, if if you don't have a problem with the closer connection, we don't believe you that now you have this uh, problem. On the other hand, uh, if a person makes a valid distinction here, uh, then you can't diffuse them because you think their position doesn't make sense. The question is not that their position makes sense. The question is that they think sincere. I know this is a really hard line to draw. It's one of the problems with religious exemption, and one of the reasons I think it makes sense not to give a religious exemption in these cases, because at the end of the day, you, you can't really... Assess who is concerned, who is not, without the kind of close politi- policing of people's beliefs eh, that can lead to the state directly trying to step into people's conscience. It's really hard to do. And further, the reality is that we have a lot of these. to think that for most of these people, the concern is more about the safety of the vaccine than about any religious issue. If that's the reality, if the concern really is more about safety. Uh, What's going on is that a lot of people are making untrue claims about religion and uh, applying a religious exemption would probably reward the people that are better at lying about it rather than the people who might really be sincere. There are some people that probably have sincere religious objections to this vaccine. For example, uh, there may be people who for years have rejected modern medicine on religious grounds. Some of these people may really believe that. The connection to the 1960s abortion is a, a strong reason not to use this vaccine, but there's a lot of reasons to think that many of these people are, are looking to get out of vaccines because they're concerned about safety and are latching onto this because they found this argument online. <laughs> uh, policing this is, frankly, not very easy to do.
2: So do you think this is the last case that we'll see involving the vaccine and religious objections at the Supreme
4: Court, or they'll try again? Oh, there's going, going to be a lot more cases. Remember that these cases haven't been fully decided by the Supreme Court either. Right now, the only decision is not to give an emergency stay for the mandate. We don't even know how the full Supreme Court will decide when the full cases before them And In the previous case, and I think that we can assume that that's still the reasoning, uh, in the main case, Justices Cavano and Justice Tony Barrett uh, signed onto a concurrence that said, we're not giving a stay because we think this shouldn't be done during their emergency basis. We shouldn't change the law during an emergency procedure, we should wait for the full case. They didn't say how they, they think they're going to decide the full case. So, the NYC case is the second case on exactly the same issue. Uh, in a previous case, Mills versus Doe, the Supreme Court was asked to give a state for main healthcare care worker mandate, which also didn't give a religious exemption. So this is kind of the second round. In that first case, Justices uh, Connie Barrett and Cavano uh, signed on to a concurrence that said, we don't want to do this on an emergency basis. So let's
2: discuss where the other vaccine mandate lawsuits stand. President Biden mandated that employers with more than 100 employees ensure that their employees are fully vaccinated or undergo regular testing and wear a face covering at work. It was set to take effect January 4th, but it's already been challenged. How many lawsuits are there challenging the mandate?
4: I think right now there's 12 lawsuits all consolidated in the Sixth Circuit. So they've been consolidated. They're all going to be addressed together
2: do they have a similar reason for objecting to the mandate
4: the osha case has it's basically a vaccinate or test requirement for employers uh, so there's no question anyone with religious objection can choose to, to, to get tested so it's not about religious freedom the arguments in the osha case are focusing on two things first federal versus state powers and second the power of osha the power of osha with, uh, to act without specific authorization from congress and the power of OSHA more generally, and applying it here. Is this within what OSHA can do using the uh, requirements?
2: Do you take anything from the fact that, through a lottery, the case is before the Sixth Circuit, Mm -hmm. which is conservative-leaning?
4: So, right now we're waiting for a decision on whether this is going to be heard on banks or by a panel. Uh, The conservative-leaning is going to have a lot more implication if it's heard on banks than if it's on a panel. Then we're going to... Ask yourself, what's the panel? And you can have different panel in practically every court. Uh, it probably is a question. Uh, the conservative, conservative justices may be more inclined to more carefully scrutinize administrative action and tamper down on them. And we've seen several decisions from conservative uh, courts which seem more aggressive in reviewing the administrative state. So. It it does matter, but it also really depends on the specific judge and how they see it. For example, uh, the Seventh Circuit, in a decision by one of uh, the leading conservative justices in the the US justice instrument, upheld Indiana University's vaccine mandate. So it matters, it makes a difference, but it also matters who the specific judges are that will decide the case and which arguments will appeal to them. Thanks
2: for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Dorit. That's Dorit Reese, a professor at UC Hastings College of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.
3: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage.